Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. Much as we'd love to have the entire account, this is where we've started with 2.3 million words. Of course, if other ministers want to fill in the gaps, <laughs> great, you know, you know where we are. More than 100,000 WhatsApp messages, 2.3 million words. That's three versions of the King James Bible. You've seen the headlines about the Telegraph's extraordinary examination of the lockdown files this week. And now you can hear where the story began. I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at the Telegraph, and this is Chopper's Politics podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by our head of investigations, Claire Newell, and the journalist who brought it in, Isabel Oakeshott, the whistleblower. Hello, both. Hello. Welcome to Chopper's Politics podcast. Where to start? Isabel, you're the whistleblower. When did you first think you had to get this information out there? Well, for any journalist to be handed this kind of treasure trove is an extraordinary moment indeed. And it actually came to me in batches. And I really, frankly, couldn't believe I was being given it. But at the time, I was working on a book for Matt Hancock, For and With Him. Uh, it was a book that was being produced against an extraordinarily tight deadline. Initially, we were hoping to produce the book within six months, which is completely unrealistic. And I only got the messages really after about four or five months on that project, mm. which left me very little time to go through them. So when was this? Um, when was, when, what, what month? So this was last summer. Last summer. Um, and obviously couldn't believe my eyes at the scale of this, the quality of it, and the, the kind of historical importance of what was in there. But the initial objective was to get this book done. That was what I'd undertaken that was to do. That diary of the pandemic for yes, Hancock himself. Um, and that's what I'd undertaken to do. And we drew from the WhatsApp material for the book, which was published in December. And I want to give credit to Matt Hancock that he did actually express quite a lot of willingness to use the WhatsApp material. I mean, mm. that's why he shared it with me. So, you know, he wasn't saying, well, you can't use any of this. Mm. Um, there were bits that he clearly didn't want in his own book, and that's fair enough. But he wasn't generally saying this is all unusable. But in the time that we had available, there was just no way you could go through 2.3 million words worth of stuff. Um, Matt Hancock himself had no idea what was in much of that, and, and you can't blame him for that. So objective number one, get the book done, get the book out. Uh, it made a great impact. He got a fantastic uh, amount of coverage at the time. And then after that, I was obviously left with this enormous treasure trove of journalistic material. And then I had to start considering what was the right thing to do with that. And I was quite conflicted about that in the sense that, of course, I take confidentiality seriously mm. and source protection. But at the same time, there was an overwhelming public interest in these disclosures. So I thought long and hard about it. And on balance, I decided that the public interest was best served by sharing this information. I certainly knew that I would attract some flack for that. Well, you've had that this week. And I also knew that there would be questions about whether I'd signed confidentiality contracts and so on. 
you know, charming of everybody to worry about that on my behalf. That's my problem on the confidentiality contract breach. And as for the other side of things, I feel that my main duty as a journalist is to expose things that are in the public interest. It's not to protect political reputations. So if people want to come to me with an amazing story, I love to go for it. But if they've also got something terrible to hide, chances are I probably will put that out there. And, and Claire and Neil, you're our head of investigations and you are always used to handling sensitive information. When did you first see Isabel's messages? So in January after Christmas, came back to work and came in to see this amazing amount of messages, you know, 100,000 chats, which is just extraordinary. And of course, the first thing you think about is how on earth are we going to get across this? How are we going to understand what's there? So as a team, we started going through it. How big is the team? Uh, So there were seven of us at the beginning, but since it's expanded, and we all kind of work quite methodically, taking a person at a time, making notes, and trying to understand, you know, what's important here. So bearing in mind what's already in the public domain, do any of these comments in chats, are they in contrast to public statements that were made during the pandemic? What's here that would be in the public interest for us to write about? And that's something we thought about over and over again. So we went through the chats as a team once and then did a second round to make sure we hadn't what, missed anything. Date by date or person by person? But, so person by person, starting in chronological order. And it takes you a little while to get used to it, as mm. Isabel will know. At the beginning, people don't uh, almost speak properly in chats. It can be quite hard to follow. Messages rule over the place. They're not necessarily chronological. And people's thoughts are, you know, kind of darting around. So with each person, you have to be trying to piece it together. And you maybe do an individual chat and then think, hang on a minute, oh, there's a group chat. What can I see in there that was at the same time that might make sense of this comment that a minister or an mm. advisor has made? So it's, it's an like act- a jigsaw. You're, you're piecing together fragments of chats trying to get an overall insight story of what really happened. It, exactly. And you kind of do it as a team. So we all sat in this room together and we're still sitting there. And you would kind of call things out to each other and say, oh, I found this. And yes. then someone else would pop up and say, that's interesting because I've just noticed in a special advisor chat, for example, that they're saying the opposite. It gives you an idea of what's happening behind the scenes, which is fascinating mm. from a kind of journalist perspective. And I think the complex part of the complexity is that so much was happening on any given day during the height of the pandemic at the critical moments. And the WhatsApps clearly don't say, they don't give that context. They don't say, oh, you know, and today this has happened. So you're constantly having to look up the records of of the kind of the key events of the day, what were the big worries at that time, and put it into that framework. And one of the criticisms that we've faced is uh, from Matt Hancock himself in his response to these extraordinary disclosures, is that this is a partial account. These messages can't possibly give the full picture. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that and that the Telegraph has not in any of its coverage overclaimed for any of this material. You know, where there are bits missing, where we don't know whether something that was discussed actually took place, we've said so. And, you know, much as we'd love to have the entire account, this is where we've started with 2.3 million words. 
of course, if other ministers want to fill in the gaps, <laughs> great. You know, you know where we are. Well, they're all checking their WhatsApps with messages about hang on, worrying what's in the cache. Claire Newell, you worked on non-networked computers, I think. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So we weren't connected to the internet. So we had we had lots right. of precautions around the chat. Which is a trick we, we learned in the MP expense scandal, which I was part of 2009. Yeah. Equally, we were worried it might leach out onto the internet somehow. Yes, exactly. So you're kind of in a cut-off little room looking at the chats on a computer that's not connected to the internet. So it's a bit like going back, I don't know, 50 years or something in kind of work, isn't it? It's very difficult. But then we had a laptop next to us. And as Isabel was saying, you're trying to work out, okay, for example, Boris Johnson is sending a message about a press conference. What press conference was that? So you'd go back in time, have a look at the press conferences, seeing what he was saying. You know, it's a really laborious, careful process that takes months and months to complete because you've got to be careful and responsible. And I think also be Isn't methodical, it? because one of the challenges that you have if you've got a big investigations team, and Claire will be much more familiar with this than I am, is that if you've got everybody making notes in different forms and styles and people sort of highlighting one thing and other people have got their obsessions and highlighting another, you would have ended up uh, after several weeks with an absolute mishmash of material. And actually what was decided very early on is a very formulaic approach and with a lot of checks and balances. So it wasn't left to one reporter, one of your amazing team to go through Boris Johnson by themselves and then we've ticked that box. There was a lot of, okay, now I've done that. Will you have Mm -hmm. a second look? You over there, you've got a special expertise in this, whether it's care homes, whether it's the politics of it. So everything was sort of cross-checked, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, So that ideally we didn't miss anything. And it's covered in themes, isn't it? So we had schools on one Mm. day, masks and the rest. You weren't trying to look at personalities, but the issues at the time, Claire. Yeah, and there are really massive issues. I think we all remember the pandemic happening and sitting at home watching television, seeing these press conferences and the awful daily death toll. And lots of people died and massive decisions were taken. And it's really important for us to explore those issues and look behind the public statements. Well, what are they saying about that? You know, are we able to expose the real reason that something was done, which is you know, what journalism's all about. And that's why we're thinking of the public interest. And you hit go on the story on Wednesday morning. Yeah. Have you been surprised, gratified, pleased with the reaction? Yeah, I think the reaction's been great. As a journalist, you never really know what's going to happen. You spend months working on something and then you kind of press the button, it's all out there and the kind of world or the country responds. It's quite nerve-wracking, mm. actually, as I'm sure Isabel felt the same. Isabel. Absolutely. I mean, Particularly for you as the person who's behind yeah. the story. One of my little ones asked me, and they obviously don't know the detail of any of this, you know, what's the worst that could happen, Mum? And I thought about this for a moment and thought, well, the worst that can happen is everyone kind of shrugs and, you know, oh, that's not that big a deal. Because really, you know, we're obviously passionate about what came out of this investigation. It is in the overwhelming public interest and for me what has been incredible is that this has made a really big impact and crucially that we may actually change things how do you feel Isabel about the reaction from Matt Hancock he says this is a massive betrayal and a a breach of trust and there's no public interest case for this huge breach well I think the last bit of that there's no public interest case is quite clearly laughable I don't think that there's any serious person in the country who could claim that there's no public interest in this he might be able to claim that 
if the inquiry was already almost in its last stages and we were about to get some conclusions. The reality is the public inquiry hasn't really got off the ground yet. It's expected to take many, many years Crucially, it doesn't have a deadline. Mm. So we can we can park the public interest side of things. In terms of the betrayal, the betrayal that I'm interested in is the betrayal of the entire country via the application of flawed policies. Claire, what's your, what's your take on Matt Hancock's response about a betrayal? You've helped get the story into the public domain. Do you feel for him? Um, I think, as Isabel says, it is laughable that these stories aren't in the public interest. Of course, these stories are in the public interest. We wouldn't put them in the paper and online if they weren't in the public interest. If you think um, we were told during the pandemic all the time, we're following the science, whatever the scientists are saying. But what we've found, we found evidence that contradicts that. And I think it's really important to get it out. That's the point, isn't it, Isabel? The, the fact is it was billed at the time as following the science. In mm. fact, politics was involved in many of the calls that were made by, uh, to govern our lives over the pandemic. They absolutely were. And, and what is so shocking, I think, in the tone of these messages is to see leading politicians, those key figures that were in charge of our lives at that time, because they put themselves in charge of our lives in a way that no one has ever done before, right down to who we could or couldn't hug. What's so distasteful is to see the glee with which they did this, the relish with which they amassed power in a way that has never happened before. And I think people absolutely need to know that's what happened. And there were some heroes, I think, emerged in this. Remember, we saw the battling, didn't we, between Matt Hancock and Gavin Williamson over schools. Mm. And then I think um, Helen Waitley emerges as this quiet voice in the background I think saying, she does. Are you sure, yeah. guys? The rule of six means big families are isolated forever, yeah. it seems. You know, what about spouses being separated in care homes? I thought she had this touch, I think, for what it was like out there. I really feel quite strongly that she deserves a bit of credit because behind the scenes, publicly, she was the social care minister, care homes minister. She was getting a lot of a kicking Mm. uh, on media at the time. Behind the scenes, she was fighting hard for better policies. In particular, she tried really, really valiantly to get Matt Hancock to relax the restrictions on visiting in care homes, which I really passionately feel and Mm. so many people in the country feel were bluntly absolutely inhumane. She was fighting to get those relaxed. Matt Hancock didn't want to know. All he cared about was being able to say that he had done everything in his power to save lives. What quality those lives had wasn't something that concerned him. And we saw how the focus on the targets of testing the Mm. targets became a kind of this obsession, didn't it? Yeah. At the expense of other things too. Yeah, and it seems to me a totally unnecessary target. He set it himself, I think, in a press conference. And so it was an arbitrary figure. Mm. But it appears that some other things were sacrificed along the way to be able to meet that target. Did you think the, the idea of these WhatsApp messages it gives a fair account of what happened? I mean, it's an immediate account, isn't it? But it's often an uncurated, unedited account of what they're thinking at the same time. I think you will get no other more raw or honest yeah. insight into what they were really saying. You know, no sanitised minutes of meetings, no civil servant speak notes will ever give you the insight that this cache of documents gives into the psychology, into the rationale for decisions, into what they were really Mm. stitching up between them, into, by the way, the extent to which they basically conspired 
to limit and select the evidence that Boris Johnson was given to suit what they, and by that I mean the health secretary and a number of his allies and the cabinet officers in Downing Street, had decided mm. ought to be he the policy. He impotent, didn't he, I think? I mean, is that a fair de- depiction of I Boris think Johnson? It's, I think he was manipulated, and we can argue about whether a leader should allow himself or herself to be manipulated, but I think that he had certainly taken a real knock as a result of nearly dying of this virus. That's blown him off course. His libertarian instincts had slightly been brought into check as a result of that. And I think that he he vacillated. And you see that in these messages. You see him sort of wanting to bring some sense of proportion into all of this, you know, arguing about the relative risks for very elderly people of dying of COVID versus falling down the stairs. We don't ban people from going down the stairs, he argued. I would personally have liked to have heard much more of that type of argument from these WhatsApp messages. And as much as the interest of what's in the messages is what is not in the messages. And you just don't see these figures arguing about proportionality, about collateral damage and about the balance of just trying to save lives of the very elderly, who, of course, everybody, no one wants to write people off. But is that proportionate if you're talking about devastating the lives of young people? And critics were accused of wanting to let it rip, weren't there, any community by mm. a lot of the ministers, even the House of Commons. That really offended those who were against the lockdowns. Well, yeah, that's right. And so you can see in these messages some of the debates around, you know, what measures do we implement here? And sometimes there's real kind of political discussion going on or at least kind of backfighting. So at one point, Matt Hancock seems to get really irritated that Rishi Sunak, the now Prime Minister, might have more power than him. Um, And so it's fascinating to read that kind of thing because politics never goes away, does it? Even in the middle of a pandemic at times, Mm. Hancock is worrying about whether he's got enough influence over the Prime Minister. And power is so important in all of this, isn't it? Because our politicians had seized an unprecedented level and quality of power over our daily lives. And what we can see from these messages is how it went to their heads and what they did with it and the extent to which groupthink set in. And I know Fraser Nelson has written really powerfully, powerfully using that word again, (laughs) um, for The Telegraph on just that issue. You know, what happens to a small group of people, let's say 12 or more that were in that cabal that were effectively running every aspect of our lives. And, you know, probably every one of us in that situation would have gone a bit weird. Mm. I mean, with that level of stress. What are the lessons learned from this, do you think? Do you think we might see the end of this governing by WhatsApp, which is what the Institute for Government talk about? Well, not necessarily. Well, hopefully not governing by WhatsApp. And I think it's entirely reasonable. It's entirely reasonable to facilitate really quick discussion by the use of social media platforms. So I don't think we'll necessarily see the end of that. If it's not WhatsApp, they move on to Telegram or or something else. You know, they are human at the end of the day. What I would like to see out of it, and I think the paper would like to see out of it, is an acceleration of the public inquiry. Mm. I don't think it's tenable to give warm words about it all being done, you know, as soon as possible. And, you know, it's not going to take too long. No, we need an actual deadline. Mm. And I think that we've heard Keir Starmer pushing for that. I think that was a really good call by him. I think it would be wonderful too if there is some kind of new system put in place, some infrastructure put in place, such that if there is an awful set of circumstances like this again, never again are schools shut 
on such a flimsy basis because we now know that the collateral damage from that on our children is just immeasurable. It's still being counted. It's immeasurable. And there, there will, um, sadly, of course, most children are resilient. They bounce back. But there will be a cohort of children whose life opportunities are never, ever the same again. And so I think there needs to be some checks and balances there. I know Robert Halfen, the Conservative MP, has done some good work on this. Mm. He's previously He's suggested the Education Committee, that there should be a veto, for example, for the Children's Commissioner. There should be perhaps an independent panel that weighs up not just whether children are vet- Vectors of disease, and I personally, as a mother, uh, found the way that children were painted as kind of super spreaders as pretty distasteful. But also that you know that all the elements are taken into account, not just whether the disease is likely to be spread, but whether the cure might be worse than the virus itself. And Claire, what what are your lessons from this apart from delivering a really efficiently a huge amount of information? I mean, incredible work, I have to say. You know, it is heartening. I've been in this industry for. 20 years. And one of the things that suffered over the years is investigative journalism. You know, as you know, most papers can't afford to do it anymore. And it's heartening to see that papers can still put this level of resources and professionalism. And honestly, you've done an absolutely incredible job. Oh, thank you. Well, it's a big gamble, Claire, isn't it? Because you know, you got the information, you sell it into the, the team here, you tell the editor about it, and you're hoping it gets this reaction, which is, is which got. Yeah, it is a big gamble, though. You know, if you put it started with seven members of the team yeah. and then it grew to eight, nine, ten, you're putting a lot of resource. Two months' work on it. Exactly, a lot of resource for many weeks, and you hope something good will come out of it. But in this instance, the gamble paid off. Mm. We got some good stories and we've exposed some things that we think are really worthwhile. And what's next? And how, how many weeks will it go on for? The, well, the MP expenses scandal was 30 days of front page stories. Wow. Was it? Yes. That's pretty hard to yeah. compete with, isn't I'm not sure we'll be able to beat you, unfortunately, but you never know. Never know. Keep going. And this final question to you is a bloke shot. Was it worth it? A hundred percent, you know, a hundred percent, because I think we're going to change things and that matters. And, you know, the number of letters emails, feedback on social media from ordinary people saying thank you to The Telegraph for doing this because we cannot ever go through this again. And in order for that not to happen, we need to know the truth. We'll leave it there. Isabel Oakeshott and Claire Newell, thank you for joining us this week in a special edition of Chopper's Politics Podcast in a very hectic week. Thank you to the producers of this episode, Louisa Wells, James England and Andy Watson. And thank you to you for listening I'll be bringing you the fallout politically from the lockdown file straight into your email inbox every weekday in my Chopper's Politics newsletter. The link for that will be in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget my weekly Peterborough Diary gossip column is out every Friday at 7pm online and in Saturday's newspaper. And do always, particularly now, always buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph to support our great journalism, Claire's work and the great stories inside it. There's more to come. Keep reading. Until next time, cheerio.